This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. About 100 Colorado firefighters are now in California. They're fighting the blazes that have swept across the state. And California is just one place Coloradans have helped out during the many emergencies across the country in recent months from Las Vegas to Puerto Rico. Kevin Klein heads the Colorado Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. And Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to, my pleasure to be here. About 85 Colorado firefighters, 20 engines as well, are in California. They arrived earlier this week. What are some other examples of recent emergencies Coloradans have responded to? So we've been actively responding to the, uh, the hurricanes, um, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Uh, we've also assisted with the uh, uh, Las Vegas shooting. Uh, sending uh, resources to Clark County, Nevada. What did you send to Las Vegas? Uh, medical examiners um, to help with um, handling the victims of the shooting. And, and Puerto Rico, have you worked there as well? Yes, we've had uh, folks that we sent to Puerto Rico. We've got uh, National Guard units there um, helping. We've got communications units, and we have uh, have uh, mental health uh, professionals that we sent to help uh survivors of the hurricane. So a lot of deployment elsewhere. Right. And it's all happening because of an agreement states have to help each other when disasters strike. And when Colorado's been in trouble, it's benefited as well. It's called the EMAC, the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. Um, what kind of help has Colorado received? Uh, uh, the 2013 floods, we had 15 different states that helped oh, wow. us out. Uh, so it's a, a compact that is a governor-to-governor request. Governor Hickenlooper has been um, very good about uh, providing aid to other states, and uh, we've taken advantage of it uh, here in Colorado. And do you have folks come in for the floods that are, say, experts in you know flood cleanup? Uh, all sorts of different areas. So we uh, actually use people to help build temporary roads. Uh, we brought people in to help do damage assessments to get the paperwork going. Um, it depends on what resources you need. Um, and as you can see from what we've sent, uh, ranging from you know medical examiners to kitchens, um, mm. we've uh, you know met those needs that other states have. So you specify what you need. Send out the request, and then the other states uh, come back with uh, whether they can fill that request or not. And it's fall now, but there's been and there's been a snow as well. But Colorado's still in danger uh, from wildfires, um, and of course other kinds of disasters that we can't predict. With so many people and equipment sent to California, is Colorado vulnerable now? But, uh, you know, we always look at that. We always look at what we send to make sure that we can keep Colorado safe first. Uh, but we've got 14,000 firefighters in Colorado, and we sent, you know, 85. So we're fairly comfortable that we have enough resources to handle uh, what we've got. Each jurisdiction that participates determines whether they've got the ability to do it. And we look at things like uh, predicted weather, what uh, fire danger is going to be, and things like that before we send people out. Mm. And firefighters are working overtime uh, here while their colleagues are deployed. Are Colorado taxpayers on the hook for what are ex expenses coming out of California? No, that's part of the beauty of the uh, EMAC um, compact and also other uh, compacts that we have with other states for interstate mutual aid. 
Um, it addresses the expenses of the people that we send and also the expenses to backfill their positions. Uh, so Colorado's not will get paid back um, by the requesting state uh, to provide that aid. And nationwide, um, I'm thinking federally and in states collectively, um, are there enough resources to fight the number and size of wildfires that we've seen in the West um, with climate change? Well, uh, clearly, the fire season's been getting longer and longer. Uh, that is a challenge. Um, and the severity of the fires has been increasing also. Um, so making sure that we have the resources to go. Um, clearly, having to run out to California is an indication that, um, you know, the system is being stressed. Um, we've got other resources that can be brought to bear, including military resources that we can can do that with. But there's a, a planning cycle that goes into that and determines you know, what that level of, of uh, firefighting activity is and what additional resources we need to bring in. Um, but it's a, it's a real concern. I wonder if there's ever any confusion between states' methods. Um, they might use different methods to train emergency responders. Um, they use different communication systems. Have there been instances where that's caused a confusion or more danger? But, uh, we try to standardize as much as we can. So one of the things that we uh, do in advance um, in the firefighting communities is probably a, a really good example of this. Um, they have qualifications, qualification task books, where people have to sign off that they do things in a certain manner and people have to prove them to get uh, qualified at that level. So when a state puts out a request, they put out a request for what type of resources they want and what those qualifications should be. So then they should know what they're what they're getting. We also put together mission ready packages, which were predefined uh, groups of resources for like communications mm. um, that we'll send out, so a state knows what they're going to get. Um, for communication systems to make sure that they're interoperable, we have systems in place to do that, including bringing our own radio networks in in some cases. Do you ever gather together nationally to come up with some solutions before something happens? Uh, yeah, we've got a group that uh, works on that. We've got uh, every state has uh, emergency management assistant compact coordinators. Uh, they meet. They talk about what those packages should be. Uh, how to deploy them. They agree on standards for the request and standards for uh, the supplying states. Have you ever had a situation where one state will ask for help but can't get it, um, especially now with climate change, more and bigger fires? Um, and I wonder if there's enough capacity. Well, no state can prepare for everything that they may may get hit with. And that's why we have the compacts, because Large-scale events exceed what a state could afford to have in place. Um, and so we are seeing more of this. Uh, this is the most that we've done in EMAC deployments hmm. uh, in one year. Um, so it's, you know, these big hurricanes, fires have had some, you know, serious impacts. Um, but that's why we have the compacts in place. But have you ever had a situation where you just can't send resources? Yes, uh, we've had uh, requests uh, that we can't send, but then there are fifty other or forty-nine other states in uh, in the territories that we can request them from too. This is really a collaborative effort. 
Yes, it is. It's a governor-to-governor process. It's state-to-state, and it's a system that's been in place for a while and has been exercised, and, um, you know, we rely on each other to provide those resources under the compact. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Kevin Klein is director of the Colorado Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Under an interstate agreement, Colorado now has more than 80 firefighters in California. This year, the state has sent dozens of other workers to disasters around the country. Colorado's national parks and 14ers are a big draw for visitors. But as the number of tourists grow, so does the strain on the state's much-loved natural areas. Dana Watts is the executive director of the Boulder Group Leave No Trace. The nonprofit has joined up with the state to teach tourists how to protect what they love. And Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you. We'll talk a bit more about this later in the uh, in our interview, but give me one example of something you want to convey to visitors who come to the state. Um, yeah, just one example. That's um, that's tricky because there are many. But I guess uh, as we see increased numbers and many many people moving to the state of Colorado, um, we are seeing and and primarily are a lot of people are moving here because of the amazing outdoor landscape that we have. And with that um, comes a responsibility to really care for the outdoors that provide experiences to people. Um, and, and we really want to maintain those experiences and the outdoor that provide those experiences for us for right now and for future generations. How much worse are tourists than locals? I'm sure locals aren't perfect um, and newcomers to the state aren't really familiar with some of the rules. Yeah, I mean, we don't have data necessarily that says uh, one group is worse than another. Um, I think that if you have lived in Colorado for a long time, there's a really good chance that you are more familiar with the natural landscape and all that Colorado has to offer in terms of a 14,000-foot peak versus a river um, or just a, a park, state park, national park. So you might be a little more prepared than, say, somebody coming into the state or a tourist from out of state. Um, But there are very simple uh, practices that we provide um, and techniques for anybody to learn about Leave No Trace. And as a person gets more comfortable with uh, their outdoor experience, then they might um, learn more and more. And and the techniques and skills that Leave No Trace provides can get more in-depth and um, technical in ways. And we'll talk a little bit more about those techniques in a bit. But your group, Leave No Trace, is working specifically with the state's tourism office. How do you reach the people who need to hear this message of protecting our resources? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And this partnership with the tourism office is brand new. Um, And so we are still really looking at different ways to reach both people within the state and people coming from out of state. But one of the most important and unique ways that we can reach people through this partnership is in the trip planning stage. So it's uh, with our most important principle and the number one principle, and that is plan ahead and prepare. So know before you go. And if we can reach people before they get to their final destination and provide information um, that allows them to come 
to our state and have a better experience because they're prepared and also leave less of an impact while they're here, then it's just a win-win. And that's what what this is really all about, uh, this partnership with, with the tourism office. One of the most unique ways is is really reaching people with that information before they get here. But that sounds really hard to try to get someone in another state to think about these things. I mean, how do you speak to them? Well, I think, um, I don't think it's going to be that hard. I think that, so for example, if you have a person or a couple or family coming to Colorado and they've identified a 14er, you know, they've looked at uh, Mount Elbert, they really want to climb. It's the highest 14er in our state. It sounds like an interesting challenge. They really, you know, they really want to take it on. If we if we can reach out to people um, in various ways, if we know that they are going to be experiencing our 14,000-foot peaks, there are very specific things that we can provide for them in terms of education and tips and um, trip planning ideas. So you need to have layers of clothing when you're climbing a 14er. You need to start off very early in the morning in order to summit and weather always moves in. So um, you need to be prepared for that. You need to, uh, there's very specific things that we can provide for them that allow them to come with the right equipment or clothing, um, things that allow them to minimize their impact so they are prepared. And and the way we can get that information to them is now through some of the means that the tourism offer the tourism office offers. And and there are different partners that we're looking at through that partnership um, to bring in and help get us that get that information two people traveling to the state. Yeah, I'm still having trouble understanding where that point of contact is, though. I mean, is it through, you know, a tourism website? What if they don't go to that? Um, There are so many people planning trips to Colorado. Yeah, that's right. And there are a lot of different ways to reach them. And we're, we're still really looking at what some of those are that are that are going to be most um, impactful. I think it is through the tourism website, and they've they've got a lot of new and, and different ways that they're reaching out to people. Um, but it's also through unique partnerships, um, potentially through, say, the airline industry or mm. lodging industry. So when people make a reservation somewhere, um, assuming they might stay a night in a hotel we're able to potentially get information to them through that reservation system. If they use a guide and an outfitter or guide outfitter um, type outfit, we can educate outfitters so they can also provide that information, not only in a pre-trip, um, in the planning stage, but also when the, that, you know, say family or, or people get here and they are guided by um, a certain outfit, while they're here on a trip in their, you know, during their experience. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Dana Watts of the Boulder-based group Leave No Trace. The group's working with the state tourism office to make sure visitors in Colorado reduce their impact on the outdoors. And the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics is based in Boulder. You're a national program. And we talked a little bit about this, but your group has several basic principles. Is there one that might not be intuitive or might surprise people? Um, You know, most of our principles are intuitive. Um, And again, I, I can't stress the first plan ahead and prepare enough, but a lot of times that is the one that people 
don't think about before enough before they they get here. But um, you know, there are some are sort of much more intuitive than others. So pack it in, pack it out has has been around for a, a forever. That's not necessarily one of the principles, but it's one of the easiest things for people to adapt and think about. When you bring you things take. into the wilderness, take them out when you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Super easy. Um, one of the other principles that we have that is very critical today, particularly in Colorado, is around wildlife. And most people, when they travel to a park, particularly a national park or state park, you know, one of the things they really want to do is see wildlife. Um, and a lot of times, they really aren't aware of the the uh, way to interact with wildlife and really viewing from a distance and never feeding wildlife and the consequences of actions that that um, people take on. Uh, they really can be pretty devastating, and usually wildlife pay the price, particularly when it comes to food and feeding wildlife. Mm. I would say that's a that's a very challenging one for people. How optimistic are you that you'll be able to get this message out? I wonder if you have any research that shows you can change habits. Yeah, it's a great question. We do have um, actually quite a bit of research that tells us when people leave no trace, when they learn about leave no trace, and they've either gone through one of our training courses or awareness workshops, and they understand the principles, they do change their behavior on the land. And um, 89% of people who have learned learned about Leave No Trace tend to, A, be receptive to the concepts or the principles, and B, change their behavior as a result of that type of education. So we know that if we can get this message out to people in a meaningful, relevant way, and that's part of what we're trying to do is really make this education Colorado-specific, um, and speak to the why it's so important that people will, they, they, number one, they care. They care enough and that they will change their, their behavior and then consequently impacts will be reduced on public lands. We did a story over the summer on an effort to clean up Conundrum Hot Springs near Aspen, and volunteers told us one day they collected enough human waste to fill a big garbage bag. Some of these areas are considering permits to limit the number of people who visit them. Do you ever think education can only go so far? Yeah, I not only think that, I I, I would guess that's the truth. I mean, again, we don't have um, specific data around that, but we know that education is a critical component to protecting natural lands, public lands. But it's probably not the only only thing, particularly when you're looking at uh, 10,000 people moving to this state almost every month. So it's a lot of people wanting to get onto the land. And those the impacts that more people have are very real, and I think it's a huge challenge for land managers. Mm-hmm. We feel very strongly that education, again, is a very critical piece um, but it might not be the only piece to protecting the land. It's a critical component. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. 
Dana Watts is the executive director of the Leave No Trace campaign. The nonprofit has begun working with the state to teach Colorado tourists to lessen their impact on Colorado's public lands. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ever wonder why that movie you were dying to see was never shown at your favorite local theater? Movies like last year's award-winning best picture, Moonlight. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. That question of which movies get shown where is at the crux of a recent lawsuit. It was filed by the Denver Film Society and three independent filmmakers. The suit is against Landmark Theaters, which shows art house films. Denver film critic Lisa Kennedy is here to explain. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the details of the lawsuit, um, who decides what movies get shown where? Well, I think it's a combination of the distributors, the people who make sure we get to see movies in the theaters uh, as the go-betweens between um, the theaters and uh, and the people that make the films, the studios or the independent studios. So that's part of who gets just decided. But exhibitors have a role in that as well, which is why you have this lawsuit. And what is the Denver Film Society alleging in the lawsuit? Well, the Denver Film Society, along with three other um sort of independent exhibitors, independent theaters, two in Washington, D.C., and one in Detroit, are alleging that Landmark is using fairly anti... um, I'm sorry. I just, I'm like... Sort sort of has... That cold is really going to get me. Is trying to have a monopoly. It's it's basically doing some monopolistic practices to keep movies in their theaters only because they're a nationwide chain. They're the largest chain um, representing independent films or specialty films in the country and that they do something um, that keeps distributors kind of beholden to them, that they coerce them to some degree because of the power that they have in the market. And so in small markets or or even medium markets like um, Denver, um, there's a chance that they're using um, what's called clearances to keep movies from being seen at your favorite little local theater, (laughs) or at least your favorite local independent theater. And when Moonlight specifically screened in Mm -hmm. Denver, how did Landmark limit where someone could see it? Basically, there's this thing that they use called clearances, which says to the distributor, there are no other theaters that can show this film while we're showing it. There are no other independent film theaters that can show this. And when, um, like the Denver Film Center, Film Society approached the distributor, A24, for um, for Moonlight, the distributor will say, I can't. I can't show it to you because you're in this zone that competes with Landmark, and this film is at Landmark. So it's one of those things where it's like they get to say, Landmark has a real hand in saying, we don't want these other film theaters to show this while we're showing it. And it's become anti-competitive as opposed to Mm pro-competitive, and that's really what part of the issue is, is whether Landmark is breaking sort of the Sherman Act and, you know, in terms of monopoly practices. I think it's interesting that this suit isn't against a big behemoth company that shows traditional Hollywood films. This is independent filmmakers filing suit against a theater that shows mostly independent films. Shouldn't theaters like Landmark get first dibs when it comes to these films? Well, 
first of all, there's two really interesting things. One is that Landmark, a year before this suit, had done the same thing to Regal Entertainment, which is to say, you are using clearances to keep us from not being able to be competitive in the Washington, D.C. market because they wanted to start showing at this new theater that they were opening commercial films. Hmm. And Regal was saying to its distributors, big guys, Sony and and Disney, no, you can't show it because it's too much in our proximity and it'll compete too much with us. So there's that part, which is kind of funny and ironic and painful, right. which is like Landmark's doing the same thing to smaller independent theaters that it seemed to be saying Regal was doing to it. Hmm. Um, th- so the other thing is film distribution. I mean, we all know this because lots of us watch things, stream things and watch things on television or on other kinds of screens that... Um, this this world of distribution and exhibition is really sort of not up for grabs, but definitely, you know, woofing and warping in a really fast way. So some of the things that Landmark, I think, probably at one point more legitimately could argue about, you know, it does the heavy lifting of like marketing. Mm-hmm. It does, you know, it has these big reels that come in. It makes sense that they sort of have first dibs and that they kind of clear out things. Don't hold as well. Plus, I'm also as a former, you know, or as a film critic who tends to side with what audience gets to see, you know, the biggest problem in Denver is probably like Landmark doesn't have the nicest theaters any longer and that you're sort of waiting to see movies that you really care about um, in theaters that they have not had to like do a lot to make um, competitive with the theatrical experience because they have a monopoly or they have the dibs on films that a lot of us want to see. It's really, it's tricky. So to me, that's just sort of when I saw that uh, the suit was coming, I was like, what took so long? <laughs> <laughs> this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Den- Denver film critic Lisa <clears throat> Kennedy about a lawsuit filed by the Denver Film Society and three independent filmmakers. The suit is against landmark theaters for forcing film distributors to give it exclusive rights to certain films. What's the impact of these practices on smaller chains and art houses? Well, I think what happens is that, and I think you can see this, first of all, when I first got here, there was a... um, there was a, another film chain out of Atlanta called Madstone that had done a really nice job of making uh, Tamarack Square theaters very attractive for independent cinema. The problem was they couldn't get any of the films that have you know that would have the kind of draw. You know, and Tamarack Square, which is in the Denver area. Yes, it's in the Denver area, up near Hamden and Tamarack. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then more recently, the home of the Denver Film Society, which is on Colfax, um, those theaters were. Um, renovated or created by a group called Neighborhood Flicks, which also had a Dickens of a time getting any of the kinds of films that, you know, for instance, Moonlight or Birdman or, you know, I, um, my cousin Rachel into the theaters. And one of the things that's changed is, again, it's like, so not only has where we look at movies change and where we look at independent films and art house films change, also the kind of films that people are competing for has changed as well. So yes, the Denver Film Society gets some very beautiful, smaller, independent films. But there's this sort of mid-commercially successful um, independent film that it is prohibited from getting, mm. basically, by this this practice. Or at least that's where, that's the plaintiff's argument, is that they're prohibited to uh, get that. So you don't get to see Moonlight at 
the Denver Film Society, mm-hmm. um, not even a couple of weeks or not even months after it's opened. And that really does have an impact on their sort of bottom line. And it deprives... Um, and it deprives audiences. Right. I mean, I, and I would say that one of the things that troubles me is that um, usually audiences and filmmakers sometimes have some things in common. And I would actually say that this is not a practice. And in general, the the lawsuit seems to make some pretty good arguments that this is not a practice that serves the box office of these independent films well either, which means that really then it really is just Landmark that's getting the sort of bonus from having these clearances where people can't come, you know, films can't come into certain um, theaters. According to the Los Angeles Times, this past summer saw the lowest number Mm. of tickets sold in the last 25 years. In summers when Hollywood expects to put up its biggest numbers, Are lawsuits like these the result of Hollywood feeling pressure from declining numbers? Well, I don't... That's a great question. So if we back it up a little bit and go, oh, well, Landmark sued Regal because it needed to get into that, you know, wants to expand, then I guess the argument would be, yes, um, there's an effect across the board for films. I mean, the summers of... The summer may turn out to be something of an anomaly in that... Let's be honest. The movies weren't very, very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like this sort of thing where sometimes we act as if there's a big mystery that people aren't going to the theater. And I will argue until, you know, I'm not a film critic of some sort that it's, sometimes it's that people really hear and know that what they're being handed just isn't really as interesting as going to a baseball game or going to, you know, in Colorado, hiking in the mountains or doing any number of things that we're able to do um, that films compete with. So, What about the fact that... Um people aren't going to the movies as much as perhaps streaming in their homes. And, um, you know, would you agree with that that's one of the issues? Oh, I would definitely agree that that's one of the issues. But it was probably, that's one of those examples where, um, yes, I think people choose to be in their homes and it's comfortable. But this is one of those things where if there's a nice theatrical experience and you're sort of seeing different places do this, right? They're adding bars. They're adding sort of, you know, the Alamo Draft House has come in from Austin has come into Colorado and has a couple of theaters open now. Um, and um, I think that, yes, streaming, adults would still go out if there was stuff for them to see. So some of it's a little bit about, and stuff for them to see in a place that's comfortable and fun and interesting and, you know, and pleasant. And I think that these are some of the things that at least in Denver, uh, in this marketplace, that is something that Landmark hasn't done very much about, like sort of, you know, renovating their two biggest theaters in town, Esquire and the Mayan. Um, They're really subpar for watching movies. So some of it's that. But yes, streaming is like making everyone confused. I mean, the Academy was like trying to figure out what to do when Netflix and Amazon are going to like get Oscars. What do you do? What What is a movie now? Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lisa Kennedy is a Denver-based film and theater critic. She joined us to discuss a recent lawsuit filed by the Denver Film Society against Landmark Theaters. The lawsuit alleges that Landmark forced film distributors to give it the exclusive rights to a number of projects. Commercial U.S. office buildings eat up 20% of the country's energy supply. Many are energy inefficient, but a Boulder developer has embarked on an unusual experiment to save energy. CPR's Grace Hood has this story about what the office of the near future might look like. Workers in hard hats finish construction outside two buildings near Boulder's Transit Village. 
The big windows ensure sweeping views of the mountains. They also let in more light. That translates into less money spent on electricity. Something sustainable used to look a little weird and awkward and stand out. Andy Bush heads up Morgan Creek Ventures, a company that spent $40 million to design and build this development known as Boulder Commons. Now I think it looks normal and exciting and like really good design. Energy efficiency has become a standard goal for new construction, but the plan for this development is unusual. Boulder Commons will become what's called a net zero energy building. Here's how it works. Solar panels on the roof and eventually along the east wall will generate electricity. The goal is for tenants to use no more energy than what the building can produce. Since solar power is reduced by clouds and storms, the net zero energy equation tracks use over a full year. Boulder Commons first tenant is the nonprofit environmental group Rocky Mountain Institute. Kara Carmichael is their manager. What is replicable about this model is that this can appeal to tenants who don't care about sustainability. A hair salon, restaurant, art gallery, and coffee shop will be part of the experiment. Tenants will pay slightly more in rent, but they stand to save on electricity bills. In exchange, they get an office space with more natural light that's comfortable and could be more productive. There are electric car chargers. And at some offices, like Rocky Mountain Institute, workers may even get a stipend when they bike and use the bus. If we can't get our buildings in a better position, our commercial buildings, our leased buildings in particular, we're not going to win this climate battle. Large office buildings can waste up to 30 percent of the energy they consume because they're inefficient. But even with new construction and smart buildings, for net zero leases to work, tenants need to have a little incentive to use less. Alex Harry with the Institute for Market Transformation studies green leases. She explains this creates a middle ground between tenants and landlords where both parties can take advantage and reap the benefits of a sustainable energy-efficiently built space. Many cities are pushing for more efficient office space. San Francisco now requires all new large commercial buildings to have solar panels. California has set a non-binding goal to have all new office buildings be net zero on energy by 2030, just like Boulder Commons. Kevin Bates is a California developer who specializes in the work. He says the shift toward net zero energy has been slow. It does cost more up front as much as 30 percent when Bates remodels existing offices. But savings add up over time. Bates signs net zero energy leases with tenants. He says they like working in a building with more natural light. They sign longer leases. That makes it easier to focus on the future. As you figure out the ways to do things the right way, you can carry that on to the next project. We're not doing our seventh one because we're losing money doing it. If tenants go over their allotted energy use, Bates doesn't charge a fine. Although in Boulder, tenants who exceed limits will have to offset that use with renewable energy certificates. Those are a kind of energy commodity that supports green energy. Developer Andy Bush says the plan is to talk monthly with renters. It's a new puzzle. In some ways, selecting the triple-pane windows was the easy part. And the real challenge was, how do you put them all together? And now it's how do we monitor and show that it actually does the things that we hoped it would do. Bush will have one advantage. His tenant, Rocky Mountain Institute, is becoming an expert on net zero leases. They'll release some of their research and case studies this December, including energy use and any cost savings at Boulder Commons. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News.
On the first page of the new novel, Girl in Snow, you'll learn a high school student has been murdered in the made-up suburb of Broomsville, Colorado. The body is found on a playground. Author Danya Kukovka spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. What was the seed for this book, would you say? Um, well, I grew up in Fort Collins, which is obviously a large city and not a very tiny suburb. Um, but I, I was really interested, um, you sort of already touched on it, interested in talking about um, good people who do bad things or vice versa. Um, and I've done a lot of reading um, that I, I took inspiration from. Um, one of my favorite books is The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Mm. Um, and that's a, a wonderful novel about a small community, very focused on voyeurism. Um, it's told from the perspective of a, a group of boys um, told in the communal we who are looking into a home where a tragedy is occurring. And I sort of read this book and thought about the interesting perspective that he uses and the idea for the main character of Girl in Snow came pretty directly from that. There is a lot of voyeurism in this book, Mm -hmm. which we'll dig into. I want to point out that you're, I think, 25 and you started writing this when you were 19. Mm -hmm. So pretty soon after graduating high school in Fort Collins, this book began. So congratulations. Thank you. A literary debut. It's getting like rave reviews. And the the, uh, murder victim in this case is Lucinda Hayes. Uh, she's found in a playground, as I said, her body twisted in an unnatural position. And almost immediately, a young man named Cameron becomes one of the suspects. And I, I want to focus on him uh, because part of the book is told from his perspective. And we learn pretty quickly that Cameron does something called statue nights. Mm-hmm. Speaking of voyeurism, what are statue nights? So statue nights describe Cameron's state of um, obsession with Lucinda, the girl who has died. Um, He stands outside her house and looks into her bedroom window. And in these moments, he becomes so still, he imagines that he's a statue. Um, He's very creepy, but I love him. (laughs) It's interesting you say that because he is. He's Mm -hmm. very creepy. He's a voyeur. He's in some ways a stalker. But you wind up liking him. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to make that possible? That was really um, the axis for writing this book for me. I was really interested in seeing how far I could stretch a reader's empathy, Hmm. um, sort of pushing a character to the boundaries of what's socially accepted and socially allowed, um, and seeing if there is a way that he can still be sympathetic and loved by a reader. So how can you make a stalker or a voyeur sympathetic? Hmm. Give me examples of what you did, the the kind of trimmings you add that make someone likable who's doing like a really gross thing. Yeah, I mean, he has a, Cameron specifically has a different way of processing the world. So he has sort of an obsession with anatomy um, and Lucinda's a ballet dancer. And there are these ways that he sees beauty in in situations that may from the outside seem creepy. Um, and And for me, it was very much about focusing on their relationship as a sort of tragic love, even though it's it's quite perverted in some ways. He's also a collector, Cameron is. Mm-hmm. He has a collection of pens, the collection of photos from when mom was young. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps most notably, the collection of people who did terrible things. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that last collection. Yeah, so that that is the most interesting of his collections, I think, because he recognizes himself in some of it. And he also recognizes his father. In His father is a character who has actually done something truly terrible and has been, you know, publicly shamed for it. And Cameron's, in many ways, trying to reckon with this um, through his collections. 
And so this goes back to this theme of how good a person can be in spite of their worst behavior, Mm -hmm. which I'll get back to. I want to know how you've answered that for yourself. But, you know, Mm -hmm. so much of the focus of this book uh, are young people, Mm -hmm. high schoolers. How is high school for you? Oh, I had a great time in high school. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I went to Pooter High School and I, I really loved it. I had a good group of friends and great teachers. Um, but, you know, high school's high school can be horrible and awkward and is horrible and awkward for everyone, right? And, and I so think, it was for you? I, yes, in some ways, of course. I mean, I think just being that age is horrible and awkward for everybody. There's no way around the, the pain and insecurity of being a teenager, right? Um, and that's why I chose to write about teenagers, because I think they're so explosive and so volatile. And in many ways, I, I, I think that that makes great fodder for fiction. Volatility makes great fodder mm-hmm. for fiction. Yeah. So to this idea, Danya Kukavka, her new book is called Girl in Snow. It's her debut uh, novel. She grew up in Fort Collins. Uh, to this idea of how how uh, someone can still be good and yet do bad things. Did you... Did you come to answer that maybe even for yourself? Mm-hmm. I I think the answer for me really lies in the notion that none of us are good or bad. There are always, always shades of goodness and of evil. And some people veer in one direction or another. Um, but in the end, there's no calculating it or quantifying it. And so I, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that there's no answer. <laughs> okay. So you don't believe in pure evil? N- no, I don't. I, I don't think... Maybe there are some real, real, you know, psychopaths out there who do horrible things and know that they're horrible and just don't care. But I think for the most part, you have to justify it to yourself in some way. Right. And that was what that's what Cameron goes through in the book. I'd like people to hear your writing, uh, which Mm -hmm. I think captures beautifully how mundane life can be, but also how moving it can be at the same time. So at the memorial service for this young woman who's been murdered, Lucinda, people write messages on poster board. And I'd like to have you read a message that a teacher leaves, which is followed by what a classmate thinks of all the messages that have been left for this dead girl. Mm-hmm. Dear Lucinda, it was such a pleasure to have you in class this year. I know chemistry was never your strong suit, but you worked hard and you excelled. It breaks my heart to think of all the potential the world lost this week. I speak on behalf of the entire faculty at Jefferson High School when I say you are an incredible contribution to our student body and you will be terribly missed. Mrs. Hawthorne. I wonder what they'll do with the poster boards once all this is over. I doubt Lucinda's family will want them. I wonder if the man who takes out the garbage will look at these scribbled notes and think what a great girl Lucinda Hayes must have been. How humble, how beautiful, how smart, how kind. The young woman who wonders what will become of the poster board is named Jade. She's mm-hmm. a sort of another misfit in this story. And I, I, I was entranced by that line, I think, because it, it makes you think of the detritus of grief. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens to poster board? That it was a moment sacred and I guess can just get dumped into the trash. Jade, this character, comes from an abusive home. Her mother is a violent drunk. And, you know, in general, there's a lot of violence in this book. Of course, it starts mm-hmm. with a murder. How is it to write violence for you? Um, I'm always careful when writing violence. I am conscious of writing violence. Um, but I think it's important. The world can be a violent place. And it's important to show that in certain circumstances. What does it mean to be careful about writing violence? 
I'm, I try to be conscious. Um, it's, I try, it, it's never gratuitous for me. Mm-hmm. It's never gratuitous. What, what, what's, the, what's the line there? Because here the body is found in a mm-hmm. really uh, unnatural, disturbing position. Yeah. She's, as the title implies, Girl in Snow, she's, she's frozen in the cold. Did you write and, and rewrite violence to achieve perhaps that, that fine line? Yes. And what I was really trying to do with the violence of the way Lucinda is found is to talk about perception. Um, The things we project onto other people, the the people that we think they are, maybe isn't always who they actually are. Um, And by having a dead girl, only her body, she can't speak for herself in the snow. I think it's a really striking image. Um, And it's the book is much more about how other people perceive her than who she actually is. Place is really important in this novel. Colorado's mountains, its dry air, its sun. What sense memories do you have of living here? You're in New York now, I should yes, say. Yes, I've lived in New York for seven years now. Um, and when I come back, I'm always just struck by how, how beautiful it is here. I kind of forget. Um, and then I come back, and I, it's also sort of a jarring beauty, I think, the front range. Because, you know, you have the huge mountains on one side, and then you have these towns tucked into the base of the mountains. And on the other side, you have these open plains. And it, to me, it's kind of ominous in some ways, um, which I love. <laughs> What's ominous about it? The mountains looming in the background mm-hmm. or the, the sort of vastness of the plains? What is? It? I think those two things together oh. make, it, make it ominous, yeah. And it has that quality in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in this book, you include several mentions of another book from 1985, Love in the Time of Cholera mm-hmm. by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, it, I, I always love it when there are sort of little Easter eggs, little mm-hmm. little mentions of other books in books. What does that book mean to you, Love in the Time of Cholera? You know, I actually haven't read that book in a very long time. Okay. Um, I, I wanted, so there's a character in this book who is an immigrant and she um, has a couple of defining traits that her, her husband struggles to see. Um, he's a police officer and they have a serious language barrier. Um, and I really wanted her to have things that were her own. And in many ways for her, it's the Spanish language is her own. Mm. Um, and she has these sort of tokens. There's also a Pablo Neruda poem in there um, that she loves and she leaves as a token for someone. So it was really about giving. I I was less focused on the text and more focused on giving this character power. Power. Her own inner life. Exactly. You work in the publishing industry yes. as an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you're, you're 25, started this novel at 19. It is getting a lot of praise. Are your colleagues authors, editors, are they jealous of your success at all? If they are, they certainly don't say it. They're They're... (laughs) very excited for me. (laughs) Okay, they're good at that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, How did you land the publishing deal? I mean, did you know someone in the industry or did you have to act like an outsider to make this happen? I stayed very far away from my own job when the book was going out on submission. Um, so in that way, in that sense, I, I had to act like an outsider because we had agreed that, you know, the publishing house I work for was not going to publish the book. I oh. think it would just be kind of a conflict of interest. Um, and I had been, you know, living in New York for a long time and meeting a lot of people who were in the book world. Um, and so in that way, I was very involved in in the 
industry already, which was probably helpful. Helpful. Mm -hmm. Did you hear as you were writing it, I don't know, like the voice of yourself as an editor screaming at the voice yes. of, as, your, as yourself as the writer? Yes, okay. absolutely. And I think one of the hardest things about being a writer and, a, and an editor is that when you're an editor, what you're really looking for in a book is to be just sucked into a world, completely sucked into a world. You want to ignore everything else. You want to be totally lost in it. And as a writer, you're writing towards that. You have to write with that goal in mind. And it is so hard to get there. Yeah, with the other voice in your head. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Well, thank you for being with us. Congratulations. Yes, thank you so much. Fort Collins native Danya Kukovka has written Girl in Snow about a murder in a fictional Colorado suburb. She spoke with Ryan Warner. That's our show for this Thursday. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.